Blog Talk Radio. Live from Southern California and broadcasting worldwide on Wealth Radio. A tax lawyer prescribing a dose of truth for entrepreneurs. A voice of common sense for the small business owner. And don't get him started on saving taxes. This is the Mark Kohler Show. Mark Kohler Show. Show. Welcome, everyone. This is Matt Sorensen. I am going to be your host today here on the Mark Kohler Show. The uh, your, your usual host, Mark Kohler, is on a boat somewhere in the ocean. So, um, hence, he's not calling in, and uh, um, and I'm going to be here hosting today. But uh, I'm excited to be here today. We're going to be talking about a subject. Um, which I spent a lot of time in working with clients on as our show subject today, which is going to be raising capital in your business and not waiting around for federal approval of crowdfunding. So um, I'm excited for this topic. We're going to get to it uh, a little bit later on in the show, but I just want to give you a preview as we haven't had it announced yet in the newsletter, um, the content and the subject of today's show, just as a reminder um, again, is going to be about raising capital in your business and not waiting around for federal approval of crowdfunding. So we'll go over strategies to raise money for your business or real estate investment, whatever it may be, and um, talk about where the legal lay of the land is right now and go over the commonly used options that are practical and can help keep you out of legal trouble so that you can raise money properly. Um, a couple notes for today in regards to um, filing deadlines. Keep in mind, if you have a uh, S corporation, your filing de- deadline is coming up here on March 15th. Um, as we had um, a couple weeks ago on the show, the 1099 deadline did pass back at the end of January. If you still didn't do 1099, 1099 reporting, um, you still want to try and get that in, and you can contact the accounting firm. Um, at Coronair CPAs to uh, get 1099s done and out for 2014. Uh, in terms of events coming up, these are usually posted on our newsletter, which um, should be going out shortly. But um, I just want to give you a couple of heads up on events coming up. So next week, I will be speaking in San Diego at the Note Investor Summit on Friday. And that's in San Diego. You can access that information um, from the newsletter. It was in last week's newsletter. It will also be in this week's newsletter, which will be coming out shortly. And um, that is a two-day event. There's actually a possible option third day, but it's a regular two-day event. I'll be speaking about um, investing in notes and real estate with a self-directed retirement plan. There will be other speakers at that conference. It's a well-attended conference. Hundreds of people usually attend um, and is put on uh, by a – a really good group that's heavily involved in the real estate note investment business. So that's the Note Investor Summit, again, in San Diego. And who doesn't want to be in San Diego in February? So um, put that on your calendars if you have interest in that topic. Um, I'll also be speaking here in Scottsdale on March 13th. Um, This will be in Scottsdale, Arizona, at the Caliber Summit. Um, Caliber is a real estate investment company, um, pretty well known here in Arizona. I'll be speaking there on wealth preservation, asset protection, and also self-directed retirement plan investing 
I'm speaking on Friday, March 13th. Um, that's going to be in Phoenix at the Crown Plaza. Um, again, there is registration information um, that will be in the newsletters. Just flagging that uh, that's coming up here in a little, little less than a month now. Uh, Mark has just been returning back from speaking, so um, he'd been on the road speaking uh, last week. Um, but he will be speaking in on Thursday, February 26th in Atlanta at uh, an event by Tony Bass, which is on um, getting procedures in order for accounting and tax purposes for your business. So if you want to get to the Atlanta area, that is uh, an available option also. Um, contact us, though, if you have questions about these events or check the newsletter. There's typically links in there for registration if you're interested in any of these events. Um, I did want to highlight also from last week um, an event which was um, a webinar that I held um, last week with Roger St. Pierre, who's the Senior Vice President of um, First Western Federal Savings Bank. It's a mouthful. But uh, we talked about using a self-directed retirement plan to invest in real estate with a non-recourse loan, went really in-depth into that subject, and talked about how you can use a loan and mortgage to purchase real estate with a self-directed IRA and what every investor should know when they go into that. We really took out some of the mystery and fear that I think is out there when you do that type of transaction because you need to know a little bit. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of confusing stuff as you get out on the web, so uh, I think we did a good job of um, clearly presenting the information so you know how it works when you enter into a transaction like that. That was recorded, uh, so if you did miss that webinar, it's recorded and posted on our website. We um, broke the system, so to speak. We had to go to webinar. We oversubscribed, and I mean we had 450 people on that webinar, and um, so we had to increase the webinar limit. So if you did miss that, it is recorded. It's up on my website which is sdirahandbook.com, sdirahandbook.com. That webinar, as well as the slides, are available on the website from that presentation last week. All right, as is usual for the show today, we will um, go over a tax and legal tip before we get into the subject matter, and I'll bring on Jerem a little bit later, who will be uh, um, the guest, I guess. We'll, he'll be the expert uh, along with me and we'll be, where we're talking about raising capital. But before I get to that, let me bring on our tax and legal um, tipsters first, and we'll start with Lee, who will have a legal tip for us today. Lee, what do you got for us today as far as a legal tip? Hey, Matt. It's uh, good to be on with you again. I know. <laughs> we always seem to align. I'm hosting. You're tipping. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, and uh, Lee's, wanna... a, Lee's a generous tipster. I just want to let you guys know that. He's, he's a very generous tipper, so... <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do try. Um, I want to talk about just uh, making sure that people understand, um, you know, when they uh, when they have a debt, you know, whether it's from the IRS or someone is coming after them, how important it is to assert your rights if you dispute that debt, you know, as soon as possible. And uh, most of the time it's like 30 days um, is the deadline. And so, um, you know, uh, what what brought this on was we had a uh, tax cl uh, client who uh, he was a shareholder in a corporation. And, uh, you know, he was just a shareholder. He wasn't in the management or anything. And all of a sudden, uh, and the corporation was going bad, he got a tax bill from the IRS for 30 grand for unpaid payroll taxes. Ooh, and yeah. 
Yeah, and that's, you know, we call it here the, the trust fund recovery. The IRS really goes after you aggressively for those. Right. But the point yeah. is he was only a shareholder. And so he had no involvement in the business, but the problem was was when he got that notice, he didn't assert his rights with the IRS in terms of disputing it within that first 30 days. And this was back in like 2011, 2010. And because he didn't do that, when he came into our office, you know, in about 2013, I had to go through a whole offer and compromise procedure that ended up you know, costing a lot more than if he would have just disputed it from the get-go. Um, yeah. We're still probably going to get him a you know a good resolution because he really shouldn't be liable for it. But the point is, yeah. if he would have disputed it within like the first 30 days and gone through that process, he probably could have avoided a lot of attorney's fees later on several years down the line. So, yeah, and I think that that's a great tip for any debt, I think, as you reference it, and even especially with the IRS, because I think sometimes, you know, our mentality is, well, I don't want to deal with this right now, and it's, you know, it's not priority, or, or I don't have a responsibility, so in the end, they can't get it from me, and, and but it just keeps going on, and I have to say, with collection agencies or um, the IRS, I mean, they have a track they just keep you on, you know, and if you keep ignoring them, you get to like the nastier, 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 and then all of a sudden you get tax collection notices or lien notices, or you get a lawsuit served on you when you may have better opportunity to resolve it with, you know, the frontline nice person that has the ability to really resolve something. Instead, you're talking to a lawyer, you know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, I see that happen a lot. I mean, that's a that's a good tip. So, um, if you do dispute a bit uh, a debt or really anything, it sounds like. I mean, yeah, your and tip with, with the thirty days. Yeah, with the IRS, you know, there's some procedures that you'll have to go through. Sometimes it's an appeal. Sometimes it's a protest dispute. Mm-hmm. You know, so so you might need a little bit of assistance on that. But for like a regular debt, you know, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act specifies, um, you know, a 30-day timeline when you can dispute and you can ask for verification stuff like that. There's actually yeah. a really good website for um, uh, for on that information as well as a lot of privacy and data security. I know. That's a really hot topic with all the um, the breaches. And, in fact, they have a, a list of all the breaches that have come out. Um, it's an incredible mm-hmm. website. Go to privacyrights.org. It's a great website for anyone interested in, like, how to keep their privacy, you know, how to maintain their identity, you know, stuff like that. Cool. And we just put that into the uh, chat window there. So there's a link to it in the chat window if you're interested in that. Um, All right, Lee. Well, thanks for the awesome tip. Appreciate it. Okay. You're welcome, Matt. Thanks. All right. Now we'll move over to our tax tip for today. And we have Rick from the accounting firm Kohler and Air CPAs. And Rick, what do you got for us for a tax tip? Hey, Matt. How are you doing? Awesome. Thanks for being on today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. So for a tax tip, um, Matt, I don't think you know this, but I right out of college, I actually went and worked for the IRS. I was a oh, uh, an auditor there, yeah, for the IRS. You and usually I, I, don't admit that, huh? I know. <laughs> well, now that I'm on the the right side of the, the game, I, I can admit it. Right. You're like the insider. Um, that's right. 
So I, I was actually I actually audited the um, small in the small business and self-employed division, um, which is okay, what cool. the majority of our clients are. Um, mm-hmm. In my experience um, as an auditor, what the main thing that we we um, focused on as auditors um, was car and truck expenses. That was a that was a huge mm-hmm. huge target for us. Um, and the reason yeah. for that is the the car and truck expenses. It's it's easy for taxpayers to to not keep adequate records for the car and truck expense. So mm-hmm. so for my tax tip today, I just want to and I know Mark hits on this a lot. I want to I want to just reiterate the keeping a mileage log. You've got to keep a mm-hmm. mileage log. Um, that that is what the IRS auditor. If you get audited, that's what the IRS auditor is going to ask for. He's going to ask for a log mm-hmm. of where you went why you went and the date you went. Um yeah. And and we're a little bit fortunate. This was 10 years ago when I was doing it. It was before the the smartphone days. Um we're a little bit fortunate now that we have smartphones that a lot of um that we can get these apps that that track our mileage. So so yeah. we don't necessarily have to have a notebook writing things down. Um mm-hmm. But that's that's yeah, an extremely so- important thing. What are some? Uh, I mean, I have some practical methods I I maybe use to share. But are, are you familiar with any of the apps that you've seen maybe clients use or that have been you know got good reviews maybe in terms of pointing someone to a, an app for tracking mileage? You know, I think Mark actually came out with an app. Um, I could be wrong, but I think he came out with an app. Yeah, long you ago. That one, one. Yeah, they got the Mark J. Cole um, app. That's that's right. Um, and, and so I, I I think that one's adequate. Um, I mean, there's I think there's hundreds out there. I don't know of any off the top yeah. of my head um, that that are okay. good. But there's there's so many out there. I think that they're they're all adequate. Um, yeah. Now the point the IRS wants is they want some written record, whether it's electronic or pen and paper. I mean, if it's a, an actual notepad or you can download the, the information from an app, as long as there's a written record of it, that satisfies the requirement. That's right. That's right. And the things that need to be on that record are the the date, where you went, the amount of miles, and the business purpose. Um, and it's okay. another thing that it's important to know is that whether you take the standard mileage rate or whether you take the actual um, method for for tracking your expenses, either way you have to have a mileage log. All right, and most people take the mileage rate. Would you say that's the case for most small business owners? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mileage? Yeah, they'll take the mileage, um, and that it is yeah. an easier thing to do rather than tracking all of your gas expenses and everything else. Right. Okay. Um, well, I'll just share everyone how I do it. I mean, this might be somewhat helpful, but I don't use an app. I might, I might move over to it, but I actually just use my calendar in my phone um, because if I'm traveling somewhere, I always, that's all that appointment and what it is is always in my calendar, and I'll track the mileage in my calendar. So, um, and I track that not just because I want to have a, re- a record if I was audited by the IRS, is um, as you're saying. But I forget my mileage if I don't do that. So when I do my tax return at the end of the year, I mean, I, I got to have some way to construct this. So I track yeah. that in my uh, in my calendar, and I can just pop up my calendar for the year and then add all those miles up. And so um, that's that's a you know it might not be the most. I mean, it's actually pretty efficient for me, but uh, it doesn't sound no, super that, high that tech. No, that sounds like but. it is. Yeah, no, it, it doesn't have to be anything high tech. Um, and it's al- also worth mentioning um, the IRS does allow you to go back and reconstruct the mileage if the, if you come under audit, mm-hmm. but um, that, that's not the preferred way to do it. Um, try to keep it contemporaneous yeah. with with the um, when you drive. 
Yeah, and you're going to forget stuff if if you're trying to go you back. Are. You know, you're you're it's February 2015, and you're trying to think what you did in May of 2014, or even January of 2014. And you're not going to remember. You know, a uh, 30 mi- 30 miles you drove over here to you know buy some supplies or to meet a client or to look at a property. You know, whatever it is, it's, you're going to forget that stuff. So you are, you are. Okay, well, thanks, Rick. Appreciate the tip. Yeah, no problem. All right. Well, um, as I mentioned here at the beginning of the show, what we're going to be talking about today is methods to raise capital for your business and not waiting on federal crowdfunding. The reason I phrase it that way for today is I want to take a little bit of an angle today on how to raise money in your business. And if you've been out in the raising capital world over the last few years, all you've been hearing about, well, not all you've been hearing about, one of the most common things you've been hearing about is crowdfunding. There's crowdfunding coming down the line, so um, you need to get involved in crowdfunding, and that's the best way to raise capital. Well, I think crowdfunding is going to be great. Um, It has been on hold with the SEC. This was passed way back in 2012. I know, it's 2015. This was passed by Congress, signed by the President back in 2012 as part of the JOBS Act, and the SEC is still waiting to finalize their regulations. Super frustrating um, that we're waiting on the government still to implement these regulations so we can have federal crowdfunding. Uh, so that's unfortunate that we don't have that option right now, but there's still a lot of great ways to raise capital. There are some newer ways that were approved in that JOBS Act, which we want to talk about, plus the common methods, you know, the stuff that you know, businesses have been using for years to raise capital, small, medium, and large. Um, and I don't, we want to talk about those today. Um, but I'm going to have Jaron Burgesson. He is an attorney in our Utah office and um, works a lot with clients raising capital, setting up private offerings, PPMs, sometimes they're called, um, and obviously setting up partnerships, other structures that can be used to raise funds. So, I'm going to bring Jerem on with me right now. Jeremy here. I am, Matt. Great to be with you. Okay. Well, thanks for coming on. Um, well, let me set the stage here a little bit, and then, um, Jerem, I'm going to let you kind of uh, be the uh, expert guest, and I'll try and say something smart every once in a while. So, <laughs> um, well, here's where we're at with crowdfunding. As I mentioned, the federal government still has not implemented crowdfunding because we're waiting on the SEC. And there's some politics to this, um, but without wasting all the time getting into the politics, basically there's people at the SEC that don't believe it's going to work, and they think people are just going to get ripped off on the investor side. And so they've just stopped it. Now, this is despite President Obama signing into law and appointing those people at the SEC. So, um, you know, make whatever... Uh, uh, conclusions from that, you will, but that's just the reality of it. So now what's happened is since that time in 2012 until where we're at now in February of 2015, there has been a lot going on in the crowdfunding world at a state level. Now, crowdfunding, uh, essentially, just so you know, that's an exemption to securities rules that says Hey, if you can raise, if you want to raise small amounts of money, which is usually a million or less, we're going to exempt a lot of the securities laws and let you raise small amounts from a lot of different people. So, 
um, we'll let you go, and they call it crowdfunding because you're going to basically go to the crowd, and you're going to get small amounts of money from a lot of people, and that way it spreads the risk out. So they're not going to let you know um, uh, someone in retirement who only has $250,000 invest all 250000 of their money into a new business venture like this, into a crowdfunding offering. That wouldn't work. I mean, they might be able to get in 5000 bucks or 10000 bucks, but there's small amounts that can be invested. The idea is to get it from a lot of different people, build a base, and help grow business, um, create jobs, and that's the um, um, that's the thinking behind crowd behind crowdfunding. Now there's some details to that, but I just want to set this stage if you're not familiar with it. What's happened though is since federal crowdfunding was put into law um, or signed into law, I should say, um, again we're still waiting on federal regulations. There's been 15 states that have enacted crowdfunding exemptions specifically in their states. Now, this is important because if you're in one of these 15 states, you do have crowdfunding already in your state. Now, this only works if you're doing everything within that state. So, for example, Georgia is one of the states. I'll read through them quickly here in a minute. But, for example, Georgia is one of the states that has a crowdfunding exemption. Now, this only works for a business that's going to be in Georgia and the investors, pe- people that you're raising money from, are all in Georgia. So it's called intrastate. Um, as long as you stay within that state, you don't become subject to the federal laws. So if you're just operating within the state where you have a crowdfunding exemption, you can start doing crowdfunding now. And the 15 states out there, you have Alabama, Colorado, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Kansas, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Oregon, Tennessee, Texas, Washington, and Wisconsin. Those 15 states already have an exemption on the books right now. Um, There are also um, a number of states that have proposed exemptions in process. And um, that there's another, actually, it's 15 that have proposed crowdfunding exemptions in process. And I won't read off all those, but they include states like California, Illinois, Utah, uh, Missouri, Pennsylvania, Virginia. You know, some of these bigger states are starting to come along as well. Um, those are proposed in process exemptions that will allow crowdfunding, again, at the state level. So... Um, if in like Texas, again, let's go back to the 15 that have the exemption already in place, you can do crowdfunding in that state as long as that business that you're raising the money for is there and the um, investors are all from that state. All right. Um, let's jump over, though, Darren, to some of the traditional methods and ways of ring capital. So maybe you could give a, you know, the, the, the most three ways. Or I don't know how you want to summarize it, but the most common yeah. ways people are out there raising capital right now. Don't worry about crowdfunding. How are they doing it right, right. now? Well, you know, without getting into to crowdfunding, one of the the simplest ways, and the ways one of the ways that really doesn't require you to do any sort of filing with a state or with the federal government, with the SEC or otherwise, is if if you bring on people who want to invest in your business. Um, as actual partners in your business, folks who are going to have voting rights and have some measure of control or at least some sort of say in how the business is uh, is run and decisions that are made regarding the business. Um, 
now that has to be a fairly you know low number of people but you know you can go in as partners and set up you know maybe an LLC that's got an operating agreement that says that, you know this is what we're going to do and this is how much money everyone is bringing to the table this is how much uh this is what kinds of services or or work or credit um each each partner is bringing to the table uh and 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 then says you know based on how much money you're putting in and how much work or credit or, or, or other capital, be it intellectual or, or work or, or actual funds that you bring to the table, uh, you get a certain percentage of ownership in the company. Uh, and that entitles you to that percentage of profit or loss in the company, uh, entitles you to vote your percentage of ownership in the company uh, on a regular basis uh, in making decisions regarding um, the company. Now, you can't do that if you want to, you know... Go ahead. No, you go. Okay, so let's say I want to um, start up a retail store. Um, I need a hundred grand to get it going. You know, I've maybe got ten thousand bucks I can throw into it. I don't have all the money to make it work. So, um, but I say, hey, I know some people that have some money that are, you know, people I already know. They might be interested in going in with me on this. I'll be the work partner. I'll do the work and run the business, and I'll give them a share of the company. I'll give them some. LLC units or shares in the corporation that we set up, and um, we'll go operate that business. And, and as you indicated, you just break up the ownership and define whose responsibilities are there. And the cash partners got voting rights, then that could be a viable way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to get, run, run away with you know I'm going to have you know. I don't know. I'm doing the math right. A, a hundred people or a thousand people each do a hundred dollars or something like that. But if there's a handful of you, you know, maybe less than ten folks, uh, you know, certainly less than five. You know, you've got other people that want to invest, maybe thirty or forty thousand dollars each. You know, two or three of them. Then yeah, absolutely. That that can be a way to do it, and and a, a way that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, and I think, you know, that's how a lot of businesses are started. You know, there's yeah. someone that's got the idea and they've got, they want to put in the work to make it happen and there's someone else who's got the money and right. they come to an agreement, you know. I mean, well, here's and you know, a lot of people will say, "Well, how much do I give the cash partner?" you know? I mean, I'm going to be the work partner, so to speak, but how much ownership does the cash partner get? Any uh any insights on on answering that question, Jerem? Well, I mean, obviously the answer is going to be different in in each situation. It's it's what yeah. you and that person can agree to. Um that's where the, you know, negotiation comes in. If mm-hmm. uh, it's what you're willing to give them for, you know, if you're doing the work and 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 what they're willing to take and you're going to come to to something um, that makes sense. Obviously, the work partner wants the cash partner to have uh, as little as possible, and the, the the cash partner wants to have as much as possible. And the, you know, you come yeah. to an agreement about: is it thirty percent? Is it fifty percent? Is it you know? Is it fifty fifty? You know, you're putting in all the money, and I'm putting in all the work. Is that is that fifty fifty? Uh, maybe it is in some cases, or maybe in other cases. Mm-hmm. Um, the the cash investment's really steep, and that that cash partner's putting in a lot of money. Um, then maybe the cash partner gets more. In some instances, the cash isn't that much, but the the sweat equity, the work that needs to be put in, is is a bunch. So maybe the the work partner yeah. gets more than fifty percent. Just depends. Yeah, it really does. 
Um, it also could depend too, like maybe it's, uh, you know, change the example up. Maybe it's a real estate deal, for example, and um, that cash partner's money is, you know, maybe secured against the real estate being purchased. So the, the investment's mm-hmm. a little more secure. So maybe I'm a cash partner. I'm going to take less ownership than if I was putting in money to buy, you know, inventory for a business that yeah. isn't as secure if things go badly. You know, I've got a bunch of widgets that, you know, how am I going to sell these, you know, so or right. a bunch of T-shirts or whatever the business is, you know what I mean? So, right. um, so it could depend on what the capital is being used for. Also, is the capital being used to pay salary to the work partner? You know, I mean, right. that, that might cause more a claim for more ownership on the cash partner side. So, yeah, right. it really depends. And I think you get into the negotiations there and and uh, hopefully come to a a fair agreement about splitting up cash partner, work partner, ownership options. All right, so um, besides the partnership option, and, you know, as you mentioned, we could be putting multiple cash partners, you know, maybe five cash partners into a specific, you know, LLC for a business or real estate deal, and um, that that could still work and stay outside of securities rules. If you're going to raise money from a lot more people than that, you know, we start getting into some other options. So let's say I wanted to maybe, um, you know, let's say I maybe needed a million dollars or five hundred thousand, and I was going to do a new business or buy an apartment yeah. building or something like that. Um, I might not be able to get away with this type of partnership structure. Um, right. Or I might not want them to be involved, really. You know, I might not want right. them to have a say. I kind of want to lay out the business plan and say what I plan to do, but I kind of want to run it. I don't want to give all these people who I might need money from a say necessarily. What what should I be looking for in that scenario? Yeah, in, in that scenario, and and that can be really attractive, not only from the standpoint of the person raising the capital, but sometimes that's really attractive to the the person who um, is investing their their money, the the, the cash, yeah. the people coming in with the cash, the investor, they they may not want to have the headache and have to, uh, you know, keep uh, real close tabs on what's going on and vote on you know particular decisions of the business. Um, in in that situation where maybe you need more money and you want to invest from more people and and you know, or get investments from more people and you want to run the show and have all the control, mm-hmm. then you can go to the SEC regulations that are in place, unlike um, the crowdfunding regu- regulation, um, it's usually yeah. uh, some sort of private offering under Regulation D of the, the SEC regulations, and specifically and everyone here is PPM, right? That's the people hear the PPM yep. word. Yep, PPM, right. Private Placement Memorandum. Um, that's kind of the offering document that goes out. But yeah, one of these private placements. Um, one of these private offerings, um, and, and they're not as private as they used to, and we can we can talk about or used to, they're not as private as they used to be, and we can talk about that a little bit. But um, there are exemptions out there. Typically, if you're going to raise money in this way, um, you have to file a registration statement with the with the SEC, which is a really long, really involved, really expensive document um, to have done. Um, yeah, I've got auditors and CPAs and yeah. lawyers charging me six-figure bills at least to get that yep. type of thing done. Yeah, to ha- to have that done. But there are exemptions um, to to the the requirement that you that you file and and read and file a registration statement like that with the SEC. Um, the the 
the main one is is under what's called Regulation D, um, and there are three rules: Rule 504, Rule Rule 505, and Rule 506, um, under which if you jump through certain certain hoops with the SEC, then you don't have to file. Um, this registration statement. Um, there are documents to be filed at the SEC and and disclosure documents to be prepared for the um, for the investors. Um, but under these regulations, you can you can raise under Rule 506 un, unlimited sums of money as long as you, like I said, jump through certain hoops. All right. And, now let's yeah. Go ahead. Let's. Um, I'm just going to jump in here because I want to let people know if they have a question, they want to call in. The guest call-in number is 646-200-4285. Lisa will greet you and let me know you're there, and we'll we'll bring on live callers here if we have questions on raising capital. Again, that's 646-200-4285. You can also send um, me an email, and I'll if you know if you want to don't want to come on, I, I get that. You can send me an email if you have a question at matt m a t at k k o s lawyers dot com. So, all right, let's um, talk about these different Reg D options that are out there. Um, now, let's go over, kind of, you know, go with an example maybe here and say, I want to raise money and I want to go out and solicit people. You know, I need I need yeah. enough money and I need to go out and do some presentations maybe, or I want to get up a website with, you know, where I kind of pitch the deal essentially. Uh, how can I do that right now? You know, I, it's not crowdfunding, you know, and yeah. I don't want just a million. Maybe I want to raise five million, um, or maybe right. it even isn't. I mean, but um, how do I do that right now? Where I want to get out there and solicit people, do presentations, get a website going. How can I raise money yeah. that way? Yeah, and this is part of the Jobs Act of 2012 that actually has been enacted. Um, it used to be you couldn't do that. There was just that's where the private and private placement came from. You had to rely on word word of mouth and networking and that sort of thing. You couldn't generally solicit or advertise your offering. Um, but but since the Jobs Act was enacted, this is some of the regulation. These are some of the regulations that have been enacted under Rule 506 and particularly or specifically Rule 506C, it's called, you can um, offer, uh, generally solicit. Um, when I say generally solicit, you could place an ad in a newspaper. You could buy radio time or, or you know, people don't usually do that, or TV time or something like that. You can solicit it in really any way that you want, uh, an offering where you can buy raise presentation, enough. presentation, website. Yeah, presentation, All you that know, stuff. book a book a room in a era, you know. Come on, Jeremy, it's the 20th century. No one reads the newspaper anymore. That's right. Herpes yeah. advertises in them. <laughs> Magazine ads, you know, all these, all these really, yeah. Okay, internet, uh, on social media, you know. Yeah, you can, I you can, can put it on Facebook. You, you can put it on Facebook, tweet, you can tweet it out, you can go on Twitter, Google+, all that stuff um, right. that younger <laughs> folks than, than me know about. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, you can do that. You can book a hotel ballroom and, and fill it with people and you know advertise that and then present the, the opportunity to them under Rule 506C. But there are conditions, um, and you can raise an unlimited amount of money. It's not There's no cap on how much money you can raise in a 506C mm-hmm. offering, and you can solicit it to everybody. But the catch is you have to make sure that everybody that ends up investing – in in this in your offering 
they have to be what the SEC calls an accredited investor. Um, and to be an accredited investor, there are lots of uh, you know, mm-hmm. there are lots of ways that you be, you can be an accredited accredited investor. But generally, an accredited accredited investor has to be someone who has um, an annual income, if if they're single, of over two hundred thousand uh, dollars. If they're married uh, together with their spouse, it can be over three hundred thousand dollars. Or they have to have a net worth of over a million dollars. And um, I believe, if I remember correctly, the value of your house is not included in that net worth right. calculation. Um, so if you've got a house with a lot of equity, that's nice, but it doesn't count towards your your million dollar net worth. Um, okay, so, so, so you, can, you can you can offer it to everybody, but you can only actually sell and end up issuing securities to those people. All right, so I want to raise this money. Um, let's say I, it's five million or ten million. I mean, you know, so I, the limit doesn't matter. I can ra- really raise an unlimited amount here. Um, I can go market and solicit. I can get presentations, put up a website, and um, uh, but when I get money from people or I, I get someone that wants to invest, I can only take their money if they're accredited. Right. Right. And and you know I, what I mean. The purpose for that from the SEC really is, hey, if we're going to let people invest in these unregistered offerings. Remember, remember, these are exempt offerings, people. So, you know, the SEC is like, gives a little bit of skepticism to it. So they say, well, if we're going to let people invest in these, they've got to be able, they got to make enough money or they got to have enough money themselves that they could withstand, you know, losing money in this investment. And I guess the, the theory is if they either have that net worth or they have that income, they can recover or they're smart enough to recover. So, right. uh, or so goes the theory. So, so, but they right. have to be um, accredited. So now what though, what about, let's say that the people in my network or the people, you know, my family and friends that may invest or that I know, let's say maybe, maybe a lot of them aren't um, accredited investors. What options do I have there? Yeah, the the most popular one would be under the same rule 506, um, but it's what's called a rule 506B offering. Um, in that case, you can still raise an unlimited amount of, of capital, um, but in that case, if you're if you're kind of want to fit in the 506B box, uh, you can't use general solicitation or advertising. So you you have to do it the way we used to have to do it, which is networking and and word of mouth you're not going to be able to generally solicit get up and and give a presentation uh to a group of people a room of people about your your investment you're certainly not going to be able to you know have a website you know about it and you know where anybody can get the information um so you can't generally solicit but if you go under Rule 506B, you can sell uh, your securities, your your investment, uh, issue your investment uh, interests to an unlimited number of accredited investors. So the same people that you you had to um, limit it to yourself to in a 506C offering, but you can also sell sell your offering uh, to up to 35 people who aren't accredited investors. Um, however, there is a, a requirement that those people that are not accredited investors 
um, either by themselves or with some sort of representative who's acting on their behalf. They have to be sophisticated, which means they have to have sufficient knowledge and experience in financial and business matters to make them capable of evaluating the merits and risks of that investment. Um, that's a little bit. So, that's a little bit more open to interpretation than the accredited investor rule. Sure. So, all right. Now, let me kind of break this down for everyone. Now, if you're, because I think when you think about raising money, and again, we're down the path right now where we say, I need to raise a lot of money for whatever I'm doing. Yeah. And you know, we're talking over a million here usually, and. Um, and I need to get it from a lot of different people, and I don't want them to have voting control. I want to be able to have control of the business. So as we're down this line, you really got two options. And unfortunately, these two options do not cross over. There's pros and cons on each one, and, and we have clients yeah. go back and forth between them, even when we're drafting an offering. You know what I mean? Because it's hard to pick which one. On the one hand, as Jerem said, if you want to market and advertise the offering – you can do that. You can give presentations. You can have a website, market the heck out of it, go to people you don't know, you know, solicit them to invest. You can do it all you want. But if someone wants to invest, you only take can take their money if they're an accredited investor. And you know, Jared mentioned, you know, they have to have certain income or net worth uh, requirements met, and they have to prove it now. You know, they can't just say they're accredited. They got to actually prove it by giving you some information tax return, financial statement, something like that. Yeah, uh, and you'll have to show yeah. the SEC that you took reasonable steps to verify that they that they were accredited investors. I did want to make that clear. Yes, thank you. Yeah. So don't just, you know, the old method by the way, there used to be some you know, accredited investor rules and the method for those rules was people checked a box and signed a form and said they were accredited. That's all you needed to do. And now under this new rule where you're allowed to market they're saying you can do that, but you got to verify that they're accredited and get some backup documentation um, to yep. do that. So now, the on the other hand, again, as Jeremy mentioned, um, and uh, you know, I know we're repeating here, but I want to make it clear because it's sometimes hard to decipher between these two options. The other yeah. option is I don't have a network of people that are accredited investors. Most of the people that I may want to raise money from are not accredited. Therefore, I might use a different offering, the 506B, as Jeremy mentioned, and under that offering, I can get up to 35 people who are unaccredited, you know, and um and that can be a great way to raise capital. The downside to that offering is now I can't market. So, now I've got to work with people I know, I've got an existing relationship for, so I can't market. So, so how do you decide between the two, Jerem? How do you make up your mind between the two? I mean, or what are what should people be thinking about in deciding between those two different options? Well, to me, it really comes down to, and and you kind of explained it, but it comes down to what's more important to me. Am I gonna? And, and obviously, nobody has a crystal ball, and we don't know the nobody knows the answer to this for sure. Or maybe you do in a certain situation, but it comes down to which is more important. If it's more important, if you think you're going to be more successful by uh, being able to get out and market the investment, uh, advertise it, solicit people that you may not know, um, 
but you know, if it, if that's more important than being able to go get people who don't have a high enough net worth, you know, or income to qualify as an accredited investor, then go with the 506c offering. Um, or if you've got a network of people that you can go to to get it started that are going to qualify as accredited investors, then man, I go with 506c all day, uh, which is you know I can generally solicit, but. If I know I've got 10 people here that are 15 or 20, anything under 35, that I am confident that they're going to be able, that they're going to want to invest and invest fairly significant sums, you know, not their mm-hmm. life savings, but they're going to be there, and I know I want to get these people, and then based on getting these people, they're going to be able to put me in touch with other people um, that may be able to, to invest in my in my offering. But i got to get these people first, and they're not accredited. Then I'd go 506B because I, I, I know I have to have these people, and if I go with five, 506C, I can't get them because they're not accredited investors. So at that point, I don't care that I can generally solicit because I, I can't get these key people um, that I know are kind of the low-hanging fruit maybe, the people that I know are going to Get get the money in to start with, and then you know the word of mouth mouth will take off from there. So if it it, it just comes down to what's more important, getting up to thirty five non accredited investors or being able to generally solicit. Yeah. Okay, let's jump over to another option here. So we've got um, the partnership model. Um, what we've talked about first. We've talked about the different private offering rules or these exempt offering rules under Regulation D. Again, these are already in effect. Um, We highlighted at the beginning there are some state crowdfunding exemptions, depending on your state. Um, What about, though, let's say I want to start a business um, or make an investment in real estate, and I want someone to maybe loan me money. I don't want them to really get a share of the business or the deal in particular, but... I need capital, um, and I, I like to try and get a private loan from someone. And I got maybe I, I know these people who may loan me money, or I got places I'm going to look. So, uh, how do I structure that and stay in compliance with securities rules? Yeah, in that particular situation, and that can be really attractive too on both ends. The, the lender, in that case, the person investing as a lender knows that they're going to get a fixed return, um, and and you know that you know if if this particular deal blows up big, um, you're going to keep the profits after you pay back the loan with interest. So th- this can be attractive too. But the the way to, to structure it is to make sure that you have a promissory note in place um, that specifies obviously how much is being loaned, when is the money due, what's the interest rate, how are payments going to be made, um, and when, uh, that sort of thing. And then that, that note needs to be secured by a first position deed of trust on that property, which means the person lending the money has to have that deed of trust or mortgage security interest in the property so that and be in the first position there shouldn't be anybody ahead of them um so that if if you do default on the promissory note and you can't pay it back for some reason then that lender can foreclose on the property sell it at a foreclosure sale and and get back hopefully most if not all of their the money that they lent that way mhm so in that um first trustee, you know, having the, the loan secured in first position. Most states all have an exemption for that that says it's not a security if you get money from someone in that way and secure it in a first trustee position. Now, I'll occasionally have investors um, 
you know, getting a loan either for a business, for equipment maybe, or some startup capital. Or even it could be a real estate transaction and money needs to come in on its second position. And uh, those are isolated situations. You want to maybe get some legal counsel in those situations uh, because it is possible those could still be exempt and you're not worried about securities issues. Obviously, those types of transactions happen a lot out there in the business and investment world. Uh, but you just need to be a little more careful. And, and I, what I would say, too, is if you're raising money in a consistent manner, um, like let's say a real estate investor would be the more common one. Um, if you're raising money in a consistent manner where money is not put in first position and it's loans, you're you're going to definitely want to get a consult for securities law issues because that could be a problem. If you've yeah. got a startup business or one real estate deal where you just get a loan in second position or even an unsecured loan in your business and it's a one-time off situation, a lot of states have isolated transaction exemptions that say that's not going to be a security and and, and you're likely going to be okay. So, uh, so there are ways, like I said, if it's onesie, twosie type stuff that comes up where you'd still stay outside of securities in the note situation, even if it's not first position. But keep in mind, if you're going to do it consistently, I think the most common one we come across, Jaron, would be the, the real estate investor, you know, getting yeah. a bank loan first position and maybe some private money in second position. That's the one you, I'd recommend getting a consult on because that one can be tricky yeah. to deal with. But I don't know if you have any thoughts right. on that one, on trying to help someone navigate through that scenario where you're not first position. Any other, any other thoughts besides what I rattle off there? Not in particular. I mean, it is state-specific, and we would need to look at getting a consult and having an attorney, you know, uh, take a look at the particular statute involved and, and giving you a consult and giving you an opinion is, is important. Um, I, I guess the overarching thing I would I would say in, in all of this is, you know, people in the tax realm, obviously everybody in, in, in America, you know, wants to make sure they don't get in trouble with the IRS. If you're in this yeah. realm... Um, you know the SEC can be just as nasty as as the IRS if if things go wrong. Um, so you want to make sure that you're crossing your T's and dotting your I's because um, they'll they'll ruin your weekend almost as quick as the IRS will if you if you yeah. don't uh, if you don't if you don't you know jump through the hoops that are out there and don't follow follow the rules. And generally, yeah. here's the other thing. Uh, with, with with securities, it's everything's fine as long as people are getting what they were supposed to get under their investment. It's when things go wrong. Then you not only have, you know, in the IRS when with a tax issue, when you don't pay your taxes, there's no investor out there reporting you. Usually, there's nobody reporting you to the IRS saying, "Hey, he's not paying his taxes over here." You just maybe you'll get audited. With the SEC, with an investment situation, if things don't go well uh, and you're not able to deliver on the promises or people aren't making money, um, they're going to report you to the SEC and other authorities um, because they don't they don't feel like they're getting a fair shake. It, as long as you you know went through the SEC regulations and did what you're supposed to do, you're going to be fine. But if you didn't, um, that's an extra layer of of problems on top of everything else when when you're you're, you're offering or your investment doesn't turn out the way you hoped. Yeah, yeah. No, and I've I've um talked to clients over the years. I did an offering for a client that didn't, you know, do so well. I mean, they ended up just basically shutting it down, selling a particular property and um 
you know, nobody like lost money, but they didn't, you know, they didn't do as well as they'd hoped. And the fact that they had all the documents in order, you know, attorneys started asking around, you know, and they had the documents in order and, you know, they, they did what they were supposed to and they were just wind things down. And, you know, sometimes that happens in the investment world, you know, things don't always go well and we got to think and plan worst case scenario. How do I protect myself? And having the things well documented, getting some good legal advice, goes a long way to protecting you when things, um, you know, may not go well. And hopefully they do, but plan for the worst right. so that uh, if you're in that situation, you're not getting sued or worse, having, as you said, the SEC breathing down your neck. So, because um, I think most people go out with good intentions, and yeah. um, you know, so, like I said, obviously if there's fraud or something, you steal someone's money. You know, I don't have any sympathy for you. They should, the attorneys should come after you, and the government should come yeah. after you. But um, sometimes if it's a failed investment, or you know, sometimes the business just doesn't go well. I mean, that's right. risk that investors need to bear. And if you've well documented it, um, you know, you can protect yourself. So, uh, really important, Jeremy. I appreciate uh, all of your tips. Did you have any other final ways of raising capital? Maybe you wanted to get anything else about raising capital right now? I guess the only thing I, I wanted to get out there that we didn't um, we didn't cover specifically, I think we did tangentially, but if you're doing any of these offerings under Regulation D, 504, 505, 506, and it's almost always 506, either B or C, but if you're doing a Regulation D offering, you do still have to be careful about the states that you're um, – you know, you got your SEC offering, you got your Form D, which is the filing, the short filing that you file with the SEC when you do a, a Regulation D offering. You still have to actually file something, and it's generally not real difficult. But you have to make a filing with each state where you're um, where you're making that offering under state law, uh, and just yeah. be careful to make sure you, that you do that, and because the state the state will come and get you if you don't if you do your SEC filing but not your state filing. Yeah, and these Reg D exempt offerings that we've talked about here and that Jeremy outlined, I mean, those are those are offerings you still need to get a lot of documents prepared. I mean, you're still doing a registration, not a registration, you're still doing a filing with the SEC. You're, as Jeremy said, you're also notifying the state, which is usually you know copying them on the federal filing and paying a fee. Yeah. And then you're going to have a bunch of disclosure documents. And, you know, these are the PPM documents you've maybe seen over the years. So, um, but there's going to be some disclosure documents. And um, so you need to still get your ducks in a row. It's not just like, yeah, you know, you write, write out a business plan and go incorporate and you're ready to go. I mean, you still got to get some right. uh, legal documents out to outline the risk factors, the investment, and how investors are treated, and, you know, the operating agreement or or bylaws, I mean, you still got to lay all that stuff out. So, uh, Jim, I appreciate you coming on. Um, thanks, everyone, for letting me host today uh, while Mark's been gone. I hope you learned something about raising capital. And stay tuned next week. Mark Kohler will be back for the Mark Kohler Show. If you have any additional questions or want additional resources, check out my website at SDIRA. Handbook.com. I'll be updating some of the funding rules, as I mentioned, for certain states. Thanks again.